You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. The bicentennial celebration of America's independence, 200 years of liberty celebrated in a glorious birthday party. The greatest convocative of sailing ships in 25 centuries sails beneath the Verrazano Bridge. The flotilla is led by the great U.S. Coast Guard ship, Eagle. The Danish ship, the Denmark. Norway's Christian Radich. 212 sailing vessels, all gathering in New York Harbor for Operation Sail paying homage to 200 years of America's freedom. Thirty-four nations send forth shining ships to celebrate the bicentennial of a nation sprung from the sea. The day is gray and rain falls intermittently, but is clear when aboard the USS Forrestal, the Honor Guard salutes President Ford. main deck, the president speaks to the world, thanking other nations for their contributions to America's bicentennial. At the outset, let me express my gratitude and appreciation on behalf of all the American people, for everybody who had any part of making Operation Sail a success. I congratulate each and every one of you for a superb job. Welcome to this edition of Gerald Ford, the Accidental President, and this is the Celebration of America, the 200th anniversary of the Bicentennial of the United States. And it's one of those things I wish I had a more vivid memory of. I don't. I was six years old. <laughs> but uh, for those who lived through it, I'm sure it was it was just a huge party, uh, a 4th of July on steroids. And, uh, and I thought, as a neat treat in a special edition of this show, we would just we would relive the events of that week because within a, a span of a week, 
we opened the Air and Space Museum, which really does point to one of the great achievements in American history, unrelated to politics, and that's uh, the, the airplane, but then landing on the moon. And you can go and see the capsule that uh, they came back on Apollo 11 on uh, at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. It is a real treat if you've never been. Uh, but you'll see the opening of it. Then the big, tall ship. I wish we had video. This is an audio show, but you can go on YouTube and see the big, tall ships that came into the harbor in New York. Uh, you'll hear uh, President uh, Ford's speech to uh, uh, at, uh, at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And finally, we get a visit by Queen, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who came to the United States to help us celebrate our 200th anniversary of the revolution we fought against her great-grandfather, her great-great-grandfather, whatever. So here we go. Um, happy birthday, America. This is the 200th anniversary of the United States, the bicentennial, in an event like no other. And here is President Ford at the first event, the opening of the Air and Space Museum. of the United States and the Vice President of the United States. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief Justice, Mr. Vice President, distinguished members of Congress, Secretary Ripley, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. This beautiful new museum and its exciting exhibits of the mastery of air and space is a perfect birthday present from the American people to themselves. Although it's almost impolite to boast, perhaps we can say with patriotic pride that the flying machines we see here, from the Wright Brothers' 12-horsepower biplane to the latest space vehicle, were mostly made USA. The story of powered flight is an American saga. The wonder is that it has all happened within the lifetime and the memory of living Americans. How many of us remember vividly the thrill of the first takeoff? How many recall the first news of Lindbergh's safe landing in Paris? How many saw man's first giant step that planted the American flag on the moon? At this moment, an unmanned Viking spacecraft is circling the planet Mars it has only been 80 years since the Smithsonian Samuel Langley launched his unmanned aerodrome for a half-mile flight before it plunged into the Potomac. The amazing American achievements in air and space tell us something even more important about ourselves on Earth. The hallmark of the American adventure has been a willingness, even an eagerness, to reach for the unknown. For three and a half centuries, Americans and their ancestors have been explorers and inventors, pilgrims and pioneers, always searching for something new across the oceans, across the continent, across the solar system, across the frontiers of science, beyond the boundaries of the human mind. Confined within these walls and windows, are the products of American men and women whose imagination and determination could not be confined. There is nothing more American than saying, 
If you don't succeed, try, try again. Nor could Americans be confined to the Atlantic seaboard. The wide open spaces have lured Americans from our beginnings. The frontier shaped and molded our society and our people. Gertrude Stein once wrote, in the United States, there is more space where nobody is than where anybody is. This is what makes America what it is. Indeed, the impact of the unknown, of what was dimly perceived to be out there, has left a permanent mark on the American character. In the early 17th century, a few fragile vessels like the Discovery in 1607 and the Mayflower in 1620, sailed across 3,000 miles of unfriendly sea. Their passengers and crew knew far less about their destination than the American astronauts knew at liftoff about the lunar landscape a quarter million miles away. The pilgrims feared the perils of the voyage and the misery of the unfamiliar land. But the sentiments that sustained them were recorded by Governor William Bradford that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and must be both enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. Behind them lay the mighty ocean, separating them from the world that they knew, and before them lay an untamed wilderness. Three and a half centuries later, that wilderness has been transformed. A continent once remote and isolated now supports a mighty nation, a nation built by those who also dared to reach for the unknown. The discovery of this continent was unprecedented. It opened the eyes of mankind, showing them the world was bigger than they had thought. Our nation's birth was unprecedented as well. A new form of government was begun, which would allow for change by future generations, yet secure basic rights to men and women. The chance to earn property was given to those who had never had property, education to those who had never been educated. In the new world, Americans had to be handy. Ours was a do-it-yourself society. Our fascination with the machines to lighten labor and to increase production began very early. The practical problems of engineering and science required education. The hard life attracted few learned scholars from Europe. Sometimes Americans built their schools before their own rough cabins. By the time of the revolution, there were more colleges and universities in America than in the British Isles. The men who wrote our Declaration of Independence were probably the best educated rebels and revolutionaries history had ever seen. When independence was won, the growth of free public education in the United States amazed the world and quickened our pace in science and technology. Our Constitution specifically gave Congress power to promote science and useful arts by rewarding inventors and authors with patents and copyrights. While some governments are always fearful of what individuals may write or discover, ours has always encouraged free inquiry with results that speak for themselves. 
It was just a century ago at Philadelphia's Centennial Exposition in 1876 that Alexander Graham Bell first publicly demonstrated his telephone. Today, millions around the world can see and hear the highlights of history as they are happening. Each new discovery, the result of each experiment, humbles us by the dimension of the unknown. Our progress can be measured not only by the extent of our knowledge, but by increasing awareness of all that remains to be discovered. To keep reaching into the unknown, we must remain free. We must have freedom to find and freedom to fail. Like our ancestors, we are always at the edge of the unknown. In the next 100 years, the American spirit of adventure can find out even more about the forces of nature, how to harness them, preserve them, explore the great riches of the ocean, still an uncharted frontier, turn space into a partner for controlling pollution and instant communication to every corner of the world, learn how to make our energy resources renewable and draw new energy from sun and earth, develop new agricultural technologies so all the deserts of the earth can bloom, conquer many more of humanity's deadly enemies such as cancer and heart disease. As Thoreau reminded us long before the age of air and space, the frontiers are not east or west, north or south, but wherever man fronts a fact. The American adventure is driven forward by challenge, competition, and creativity. It demands of us sweat and sacrifice and gives us substance and satisfaction. Our country must never cease to be a place where men and women try the untried, test the impossible, and take uncertain paths unto the unknown. Our bicentennial commemorates the beginning of such a quest, a daring attempt to build a new order in which free people govern themselves and fulfill their individual destinies. But the best of the American adventure lies ahead. Thomas Jefferson said, I like to dream of the future better than the history of the past. So did his friendly rival, John Adams, who wrote of his dream to see rising in America an emperor of liberty and a prospect of two or three hundred millions of free men without one noble or one king among them. You say it, it is impossible. If I should agree with you in this, I would still say, let us try the experiment. I can only add, let the experiment continue. Thank you. From the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington.
When Jefferson wrote that, he pulled off an historic switch. For a long time, English law had used the phrase life, liberty, and property to describe the most precious things that couldn't be taken away from anybody without due legal process. But Jefferson dropped property in the Declaration of Independence and substituted the pursuit of happiness. Like any good politician, Jefferson knew how to say exactly what he meant when he wanted to. So life and liberty are plain enough to everybody. But Jefferson never did say what he meant by the pursuit of happiness. If we have liberty, how each of us pursues happiness is up to us. However you define it, the United States of America has been a happy nation over the past 200 years. Nobody is happy all the time, but most of the people have been happy most of the time. Even in our darkest hours, we have managed a little fun. I knew what happiness was when I was a boy. It was the 4th of July. For weeks, we would save up our pennies, nickels, and dimes. Then at the last moment, Dad would come through with a couple of bucks for skyrockets. Then, of course, there'd be the big flag to hang out on the front porch and the ice cream freezer to turn and the first big spoonful that gave you a headache. Then there were parades and bands and those long speeches. This won't be one. <laughs> there would be a picnic and softball games, the endless wait until it got dark enough for the Roman candles, sparklers for the little ones who really liked the lightning bugs better. When it was all over, you went to bed happy because you knew it would happen all over again the next 4th of July. And here we are on the eve of our 200th, the greatest 4th of July any of us will ever see. We are a happy people because we are a free people. And while we have our faults and our failures, tonight is not the time to parade them. Rather, let's look to the third century as the century in which freedom finds fulfillment in even greater creativity and individuality. Tonight, we salute the pursuit of happiness as we listen to our exciting past in song and in story. 200 years ago this very day, John Adams wrote his wonderful wife, Abigail, that he expected the glorious anniversary of independence to be observed down through the ages with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. So break out the flags, strike up the band, light up the sky, let the whole wide world know that the United States of America is about to have another happy birthday, going strong at 200. And in the words of the immortal Al Jolson, you ain't seen nothing yet. Thank you. How should I describe the American spirit? The spirit of America is not the land of America, yet it pervades the land. It is not the government of America, yet our spirit is its moral. The American spirit is not the conscious of America, and yet the two are inseparable. We've been them all, yet the American spirit is indeed unique. Unique because in our own Texas, New Hampshire, California, Missouri, South Carolina way, 
we just plain think we're a little bit special. And we are. By God and by the foresight of our forefathers, we are. Liberty, that's the spirit of America. It always has been and it always will be. So then to everybody a chance, to everybody regardless of his birth, an opportunity, to everybody the right to live, to work, to be themselves and become whatever their visions and their liberties combine to make them. This is the spirit of America, liberty to be cherished and reverenced and preserved at all costs. Our beloved America, may God bless her tonight and always. the Great American Birthday Party. From the American Broadcasting Company's Bicentennial Center in New York City, Harry Reasoner. Good morning. We're here and we'll be here throughout the day in this red, white, and blue studio to take a look at what the second oldest major continuing nation in the world is doing to celebrate the 200th anniversary of its independence. My inclination was to open each of the three hour-long programs we have scheduled by setting off a four-inch firecracker. Cooler heads prevailed. It's not only illegal, but we couldn't figure out which union would have jurisdiction. That's one of the things that is different from 200 years ago. Another is that we can sit here like a patriotic spider at the center of a national electronic web and look at things from East Eagle Jaw, Maine, to Falling Arches, Oregon. 200 years ago, it took until August for the word of independence to get to Georgia from Philadelphia. What happened this bicentennial is that in a dozen years of backing and filling and argument, we never did decide on one big national celebration, and maybe that was a good thing, because what filled the void was a lot of special things around the country. We'll be looking at them as they happen all day, from sunrise to sunset, in a country so broad, it takes 24 hours for the sun to rise and set on its flag. And so tall, you can hear speeches in a dozen accents and a half dozen American languages. We'll be dropping in on the great American birthday party across the land. Just a sample right now, beginning with Dick Shoemaker in San Francisco. Harry, we're standing in front of the Golden Gate Bridge. The only problem is right now you can't see it because of all the fog. But then again, that's San Francisco. 200 years ago this year... On the other side of where the Golden Gate Bridge is now, Spanish soldiers planted a cross and founded the city of San Francisco. So we're celebrating two big events here, even though the people of San Francisco seldom need a reason to have a party. We started this one early. We taped the sunrise, 551 officially this morning, and all day here in San Francisco, there are going to be parades and festivals and fireworks. And on the bay itself, 4,000 pleasure boats are supposed to be gathering reminding us that San Francisco is still a creature of the sea. This is Dick Shoemaker overlooking Golden Gate Bridge. We've gotten lucky in St. Louis. After several days of miserable weather, the sun is shining brightly, and so much the better for the half million people who will be gathering here at the base of the Gateway Arch. It's the nation's highest national monument, built as a memorial to the early pioneers who came through this city. 
The Mississippi is, of course, probably America's greatest river, so most of the activity today will be focused on the banks of the Mississippi. And American music is the theme of this bicentennial celebration. So along with the river activity, there'll be performances by all sorts of jazz, blues, and Dixie groups. A barge will leave later for New Orleans carrying a brass band, which will play all along the way. We're also going to see a race between two stern wheelers. There will be an aerobatic show. We're going to have fun in St. Louis. I'm Ron Miller at the Gateway Arch. Virginia. Welcome to... In Welcome to Independence Hall, Philadelphia, the birthplace of our nation, the first capital of the United States. President Ford is here and will speak shortly. So, too, will Miss Marian Anderson, the former star of Metropolitan Opera, who will read excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. A little later, there will be a symbolic ringing of the Liberty Bell, symbolic because of its crack. But there will be a ringing of the Centennial Bell, which will ring 13 times in honor the 13 original colonies. Also, there is a gigantic parade scheduled here, five and a half hours long, that will involve about 35,000 people. The stars of the parade will be our 50 states. Finally, security here is very tight, not just because President Ford is here, but also because there are two large demonstrations planned that may involve about 35,000 people. I'm Jim Walker at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Well, it could hardly be better. The Lincoln Memorial is well attended by celebrators of America's birthday, and from here we can follow Lincoln's gaze across the reflecting pool to the Washington Monument and the Capitol Dome beyond. If there's a better view in Washington, I've been misled. Over to the right of us, the Festival of American Folk Life, where we'll pass the day and we'll likely enjoy every minute. It's all American. The way we work at various trades, the ways we worship, the music that makes us sing all in a setting quite reminiscent of a good old-fashioned county fair. Perfect scenes to whet the appetite for hot dogs and beer. Jim Kincaid at the Lincoln Memorial. I'm at the other end of the mall from where Jim just reported. This is the foot of Capitol Hill, and this is the People's Bicentennial Celebration. There won't be much happening here for at least a half an hour because most of the people are on their way over here from the Jefferson Monument, where they held a church service this morning. Throughout the day here, we're going to have speeches and entertainment. Speeches decrying big business's role in the current American scene, calling for a new revolution, a revolution against what big business is doing to the country. This is a counter-demonstration, in effect. A lot of people are heading here now. They'll be here very soon. It's a young group, a group reminiscent of Woodstock, of May Day, of all of the early protest demonstrations. Part of the theme is if Sam Adams were alive today, he would be raising hell. There will be some hell raised here, but it'll only be verbal. Roger Peterson, ABC News at the People's Bicentennial. This is Battery Park in Lower Manhattan. Wave after wave of immigrants have landed at this spot or near it over the past 200 years, and many of them settled within a few blocks of here. The old neighborhoods still dot the Lower East Side, and this afternoon, each of these ethnic centers will be hosting folk festivals. But this morning, all attention is focused out there, just out of sight, beyond Governor's Island and Verrazano Narrows, where that incredible fleet of tall ships stands ready to make its approach up the Hudson River. And then tonight, a fireworks display to dwarf anything that's gone before, shooting up from Governor's Island and Ellis Island, from barges on the water, and from the centerpiece, the Statue of Liberty. This is Ted Koppel in Battery Park. Just a sample of what we're going to be able to see today. On the afternoon of July 4, 1776, in Philadelphia, the men who had approved the Declaration of Independence heard a letter from General Washington in New York. 
A fleet of 110 British warships had gathered in New York Harbor. They carried an invading army. Today, the tall ships have returned. This time, they come in peace. We'll spend some time with Operation Sail in a moment. The major event of the morning, the major official event, is the celebration in Philadelphia at Independence Hall, where President Ford is going to speak shortly. He's been running a little late today. With him, our White House correspondent is Ann Compton. Uh, what caused the delay, uh, Ann? Well, Harry, I'm afraid that President Ford is as vulnerable to weather as anybody else is, even if it's the nation's 200th birthday. As we came into Valley Forge earlier this morning, uh, his helicopter had to circle for about 10 minutes while we found a way to come in down through the crowd. But the sky's clear here, and President Ford is looking forward to what is obviously his most significant speech at the five-centennial weekend. He had originally thought of giving just one major speech, and they revised that he's doing six short speeches. And this is number five in that series. It's the most... Uh, uh, it's the most important because he is, uh, is at this point in the bicentennial weekend, instead of looking back at the spirit of America, looking back at the, uh, uh, the kind of motivating forces that he finds in the bicentennial weekend, this time President Ford is going to offer an agenda for the future. He's going to uh, uh, give a look ahead. And I think it's that look ahead that President Ford's having the most fun with on this bicentennial weekend. After all, he's helicoptering around to several different cities. He's uh, taking advantage of all the 20th century technology. And uh, and he's he's finding that uh, being president in, on this 200th anniversary is probably the best part of being in office. Well, President Ford is a man who appreciates that uh, aspect of the presidency. I remember in an interview at Camp David a year and a half ago when he'd been in office a fairly short time, I asked him if with all the problems and all the awesome responsibilities of being president, there weren't some nice things about it, and he says, it's fun. You know, he uh, he said that in a, a, a bicentennial speech last night in which he had a chance to take a lighter side of this, talk to this about laughter and liberty go together. He went to a musical event at the Kennedy Center in Washington, and he is finding that this is a, this is a time when he can really help almost feel a tangible buoying of spirits of Americans. And, and he finds that very encouraging right now. It's going to be a long, hot summer politically for him. It's not a um, bad holiday to come during the middle of a political campaign or when uh, he's within 20 or 30 delegate votes of Ronald Reagan. There's, a, there's an advantage of being president that there's just nothing an opponent can do about on a day like today because people do want to see the president. Very true. He uh, did not bring Mrs. Ford with him on this I, part of the trip. I think trip. he is about to speak now. Okay. Thank you very much, Charlton Heston, Mayor Rizzo, Governor Schaap, Reverend Clergy, distinguished members of Congress, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. On Washington's birthday in 1861, a fortnight after six states had formed a confederacy of their own, Abraham Lincoln came here to Independence Hall, knowing that in 10 days, he would face the cruelest national crisis of our 85-year history. I am filled with deep emotion, he said, at finding myself standing here in the place where collected together the wisdom, the patriotism, the devotion to principle, 
from which sprang the institutions under which we live. Today, we can all share these simple, noble sentiments. Like Lincoln, I feel both pride and humility, rejoicing and reverence, as I stand in the place where two centuries ago the United States of America was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. From this small but beautiful building, then the most imposing structure in the colonies, came the two great documents that continue to supply the moral and intellectual power for the American adventure in self-government. Before me is the great bronze bell that joyously rang out the news of the birth of our nation from the steeple of the State House. It was never intended to be a church bell. Yet a generation before the great events of 1776, the elected assembly of Pennsylvania ordered it to be inscribed with this biblical verse, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. The American settlers had many, many hardships, but they had more, than, more liberty than any other people on earth. That was what they came for and what they meant to keep. The verse from Leviticus on the Liberty Bell refers to the ancient Jewish year of Jubilee. In every 50th year, the Jubilee restored the land and the equality of persons that prevailed when the children of Israel entered the land of promise. And both gifts came from God as the Jubilee regularly reminded them. Our founding fathers knew their Bibles as well as their Blackstone. They boldly reversed the age-old political theory that kings derived their powers from God and asserted that both powers and unalienable rights belong to the people as direct endowments from their creator. Furthermore, they declared that governments are instituted among men to secure their rights and to serve their purposes, and governments continue only so long as they have the consent of the governed. When George Washington, already commanding the American Continental Army in the field, the Second Continental Congress met here in 1776 not to demand new liberties, but to regain long-established rights which were being taken away from them without their consent. The American Revolution was unique and remains unique in that it was fought in the name of the law as well as liberty. At the start, the Declaration of Independence proclaimed the divine source of individual rights and the purpose of human government as Americans understood it. That purpose is to secure the rights of individuals against even government itself. But the Declaration did not tell us how to accomplish this purpose or what kind of government to set up. First, our independence 
had to be won. It was not won easily. At the nearby encampment of Valley Forge, the rude bridge at Concord, and the crumbling battlements of Yorktown bear vivid interest. We have heard much, though we cannot hear it too often, about 56 Americans who cast their votes and later signed their names to Thomas Jefferson's ringing declaration of equality and freedom, so movingly read to us this morning by Miss Marian Anderson. Do you know what price the signers of that parchment paid for their patriotism, the devotion to principle of which Lincoln spoke? John Hancock of Massachusetts was one of the wealthiest men who came to Philadelphia. Later, as he stood outside Boston and watched the enemy sweep by, he said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar. Altogether, of the 56 men who signed our great declaration, five were taken prisoner, 12 had their homes sacked, two lost their sons, nine died in the war itself. Those men knew what they were doing. In the final stirring words of the declaration, they pledged to one another, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And when liberty was at stake, they were willing to pay the price. We owe a great debt to these founders and to the foot soldier who followed General Washington into battle after battle, retreat after retreat. But it is important to remember that final success in that struggle for independence, as in the many struggles that have followed, was due to the strength and support of ordinary men and women who were motivated by three powerful was due to the strength and support of ordinary men and women who were motivated by three powerful impulses personal freedom self government and national unity for all but the black slaves many of whom fought bravely beside their masters because they also heard the promise of declaration. Freedom was won in 1783. But the loose articles of confederation have proved inadequate in war and were even less effective in peace. Again in 1787, representatives of the people and the states met in this place form a more perfect union, a permanent legal mechanism that would translate the principles and purposes of Jefferson's declaration into effective self-government. Six signers of the declaration came back to forge the Constitution, including the sage of Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin. Jefferson had replaced him as ambassador in Paris the young genius of the Constitutional Convention was another Virginian, James Madison. The hero of the Revolution, Washington, was called back from Mount Vernon to preside. Seldom in history have the men who made a revolution seen it through, but the United States was fortunate. The result 
of their deliberations and compromises was our Constitution, which William Gladstone, a great British Prime Minister, called the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. The Constitution was created to make the promise of the Declaration come true. The Declaration was not a protest against government, but against the excesses of government. It prescribed the proper role of government to secure the rights and to, of individuals and to affect their safety and their happiness. In modern society, no individual can do this all alone. So government is not necessarily evil, but a necessary good. The framers of the Constitution declared, feared a central government that was too strong, as many Americans rightly do today. The framers of the Constitution, after their experience under the Articles, feared a central government that was too weak, as many Americans rightly do today, and that all contained the seeds of their own destruction. So the framers built something new, drawing upon their English traditions, on the Roman Republic, on the uniquely American institution of the town meeting to reassure those who felt the original Constitution did not sufficiently spell out the unalienable rights of the Declaration. The first United States Con Congress added and the states ratified the first ten amendments which we call the Bill of Rights. Later, after a tragic fraternal war, those guarantees were expanded to include all Americans. Later still, voting rights were assured for women and for younger citizens 18 to 21 years of age. It's good to know that in our own lifetime, we have taken part in the growth of freedom and in the expansion of equality, which began here so long ago. This union of corrected wrongs and expanded rights has brought the blessings of liberty to 215 million Americans, but the struggle for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is never truly won. Each generation of Americans, indeed of all humanity, must strive to achieve these aspirations anew. Liberty is a living flame to be fed, not dead ashes to be revered, even in a bicentennial year. It is fitting that we ask ourselves hard questions, even on a glorious day like today. Are the institutions under which we live working the way they should? Are the foundations laid in 1776 and 1789 still strong enough and sound enough to resist the tremors of our time? Are our God-given rights secure, our hard-won liberties protected? The very fact that we can ask these questions, that we can freely examine and criticize our society, is cause for confidence itself. Many of the voices raised in doubt 
200 years ago are served to strengthen and improve the decisions finally made. The American adventure is a continuing process. As one milestone is passed, another is sighted. As we achieve one goal, a longer lifespan, a literate population, a leadership in world affairs, we raise our sights. As we begin our third century, there is still so much to be done. We must increase the independence of the individual and the opportunity of all Americans to attain their full potential. We must ensure each citizen's right to privacy. We must create a more beautiful America, making human works conform to the harmony of nature. We must develop a safer society, so ordered that happiness may be pursued without fear of crime or man-made hazards. We must build a more stable international order, politically, economically, and legally. We must match the great breakthroughs of the past century by improving health and conquering disease. We must continue to unlock the secrets of the universe beyond our planet as well as within ourselves. We must work to enrich the quality of American life at work at play and in our home. It is right that Americans are always improving. It is not only right, it is necessary. From need comes action, as it did here in Independence Hall. Those fierce political rivals, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, in their later years carried out a warm correspondence both died on the 4th of July of 1826, having lived to see the handiwork of their finest hour endure a full 50 years. They had seen the Declaration's clear call for human liberty and equality arouse the hopes of all mankind. And Jefferson wrote to Adams that even should the cloud of barbarism and despotism Again, obscure the science and libraries of Europe. This country remains to preserve and restore light and liberty to them. Over a century later, in 1936, Jefferson's dire prophecy seemed about to come true. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, speaking for a mighty nation, reinforced by millions and millions of immigrants who had joined the American adventure, was able to warn the new despotism. We too, born to freedom and believing in freedom, are willing to fight to maintain freedom. We and all others who believe as deeply as we do would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. knows where we stand. The world is ever conscious of what Americans are doing, for better or for worse, because the United States today remains the most successful realization of humanity's universal hope. The world may or may not follow, 
But we leave because our whole history says we must. Liberty is for all men and women as a matter of equal and unalienable rights. The establishment of justice and peace abroad. The establishment of justice and peace abroad will in large measure depend upon the peace and justice we create here in our own country, for we still show the way. The American adventure began here with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. It continues in a common conviction that the source of our blessings is a loving God in whom we trust. Therefore, I ask all the members of the American family, our guests and friends, to join me now in a moment of silent prayer and meditation in gratitude for all that we have received and to ask continued safety and happiness for each of us and for the United States of America. Thank you and God bless you. President Ford, speaking at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, has talked about where the United States came from and where it might be going. The American process, Thank he you. says, is a continuing one. This is the fifth of six brief speeches that he's making over this uh, uh, bicentennial weekend. He will be in uh, New York in an hour or two to review Operation Sail and the Naval Review from the decks of the USS Forest Hall. In New York, Operation Sail is getting well underway. The... Uh, Big boats, the tall ships, have come out from under the Verrazano Bridge, moving up to the harbor. Uh, they remain the most gripping sight with, of the uh, uh, bicentennial affairs, and we will be back to take a closer look at Operation Sail and where it stands right now in just a minute. On July 7th, 1976, the United States welcomed Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II uh, here to commemorate the Bicentennial, and it was quite an event to have the Queen of England here in the United States. Uh, Queen Elizabeth had that uh, charisma, you know, wherever she went. Uh, you know, I've told people that she just passed away last year. We did a couple of tribute shows to her uh, that she was different than most royalty, most monarchs. I guess maybe the World War II connection or what have you. She was a beloved figure in the world, probably the most uh, known woman in the world. And when she passed, what a huge event that was last year. Uh, and I thought it was pretty neat to see her here to help us celebrate our 200th anniversary. Uh, she might not have been our queen, as people have pointed out to us, but she was still, like I said, a beloved figure and probably... Not in 1976, but by the time she passed away this year, you know, she's probably the last figure of the World War II era that was still with us. And with her passing, it was the end of that generation that we have so commemorated on this show, because this is a, a, leadership, a show about leadership of the last half of the 20th century and the leadership that that generation brought. And this was probably an act of it, having the queen come here to celebrate a revolution against her own country. But it shows you the close ties and the... Uh, friendship and the bonds that hold 
the United Kingdom uh, to the United States. During America's bicentennial celebrations, there's great activity in the city of Washington, at the White House in particular. President and Mrs. Ford greet a very special visitor. 200 years after the Declaration of Independence, a British monarch comes to America as an honored guest and a good friend. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth is made royally welcome. Accompanying the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh. Among those to meet Her Majesty and Prince Philip are America's Foreign Secretary, Henry Kissinger, and Mrs. Kissinger. The royal guests are accorded the highest military courtesy, a 21-gun salute. As the national anthems of both countries are played, those present at the reception can reflect with satisfaction on the depth of friendship that has existed between the people of Britain and the states of this great American Union. While Washington is on fate for the state visit, time is set aside for a solemn wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery, which overlooks the capital. Here lies the unknown soldier, symbolic of the fallen in two world wars. Major General Robert Yerkes, military commander of the Washington District, escorts the Queen and Prince Philip during the ceremony. It's a visit the good citizens of Washington will remember with pleasure. Then it's New York's turn to welcome the royal party. Britannia salutes another lady, a well-known landmark in the city with the tall skyline. New Yorkers, young and old, wait at the Battery Manhattan for the royal yacht to appear. At Federal Hall, New York's Mayor Abraham Beam presents Her Majesty with a Bicentennial Medal and proclaims her an honorary citizen of this big, expansive city. visit to Bloomingdale's, one of those sumptuous department stores for which this fabulous city is famous. Everything's on a big scale, including the automobile. It's a friendly, informal occasion that rounds off a wonderful day for Her Majesty and the New Yorkers she met in the tallest town on earth our past. We also look forward with confidence to working for a better life for all humanity. In our third century, I know that the United Kingdom will be on our side and the United States will be on your side. Your Royal Highness, Ladies and gentlemen, the Queen. The Queen. Permanence. Anglo-American friendship.
It has grown and prospered down the years. It has brought with it benefits beyond measure to our peoples. May it long continue to flourish for the sake of both our countries and for the greater good of mankind. Mr. President, I raise my glass to you and to Mrs. Ford to the 200th birthday of America and to the happiness of our staunch and generous people. President. Mr. President. Look at our past and to move forward together into our future. These bicentennial minutes have focused attention on all aspects of the birth of our nation, which established American freedom and kept its promise alive. The bicentennial year and the bicentennial minutes end tonight as our first resolution of the new year. Let us pledge to keep the spirit of 76 alive. Thank you and a happy new year to you all. on a bayou down Louisiana way? Have you watched the cold fog drifting over San Francisco Bay? Have you heard a Bob White calling in the Carolina Pines? Or heard the bellow of a diesel in the Appalachia Mines? Does the call of the Niagara thrill you when you hear her waters roar? You look with awe and wonder at her Massachusetts shore where Men who braved a hard new world first stepped on Plymouth Rock. Do you think of them when you stroll along a New York City dock? Have you seen a snowflake drifting in the Rockies way up high? Have you seen the sun come blazing down from a bright Nevada sky? Have you hailed of the Columbia as you rushed into the sea? Or are you headed Gettysburg? Our struggle to be free? Have you seen the mighty Tetons who watched an eagle soar? Have you seen the Mississippi roll along Missouri's shore? Have you felt a chill at Michigan when on a winter's day her waters rage along the shore in thunderous display? Does the word aloha make you warm? Do you stare in disbelief when you see the surf come roaring in at Waimea Reef? From Alaska's cold to the Everglades, from the Rio Grande to Maine, my heart cries out, my pulse runs fast, the might of her domain. You ask me why I love her? I have a million reasons why. My beautiful America, beneath God's wide, wide sky.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.